Hello, everyone. Jennifer Doliak here. The Probable Causation team is hard at work on some new episodes, but today we're rebroadcasting one of our favorite interviews, first posted in October of 2019. In this episode, I talk with Aaron Chelfin about his research on how street lighting affects crime. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Aaron Chalfin. Aaron is an assistant professor of criminology at the University of Pennsylvania. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I love the podcast, so it's a privilege to be a contributor as well as a listener. <laughs> well, great. Good, good to have you here. So we're going to talk today about a very cool field experiment you ran in New York City, testing the effects of streetlights on crime. But before we dive into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Uh, sure. So I'm a professor of criminology, but my PhD is from a school of public policy. So I've always found myself interested uh, in how social planners can control crime in a way that's efficient. Um, And, you know, we can always use heavy-handed tactics like, you know, lots and lots of arrests or um, putting lots and lots of people in prison. And that, to a degree, is effective. But, um, you know, it's really uh, very costly both to taxpayers and to communities. And so all politics aside, it's simply not a sustainable way um, to control crime in a free society. And and so I think we have to think creatively about how to complement enforcement in a way that uses carrots uh, and not only sticks. Um, and that's really where where uh, you know a lot of my interest in this in this area comes from. Um, with respect to how I got interested in streetlights, I think there's really uh, sort of two answers to, to your question. Um, so more abstractly, I guess for for some time I've been really bullish on uh, the built environment, um, meaning the design of physical space and what a community looks like um, as a means to control crime in an effective way. Um, and I think there's a number of things to really like about the built environment. Um, so first, if you can if you can keep crime low by just changing the physical environment rather than through more and more enforcement, more and more incarceration, um, that feels like it's going to be a huge win. Um, if a crime happens, you know the victim, um, you know suffers some costs, and then you have to uh, arrest a person, adjudicate them, uh, punish them. Um, that's very expensive for a lot of people, um, including the taxpayers. Um, but if you can dissuade people from offending in the first place, um, that's always going to be a lot cheaper. Uh, I think that's what we ought to aspire to do when we think about criminal justice policy. And you know, furthermore, people tend to like environmental design changes that make their communities feel more safe and more orderly. Um, so they tend to be pretty popular and have some downstream effects. Uh, so second, you know, when we when we think about this sort of set of creative ideas that use carrots rather than sticks, uh, you know, so one set of ideas might revolve around the physical environment. Another might revolve around social programming. So I'm thinking here about programs that, that help provide people with uh, monetary or social supports that make their lives um, better and easier, that might uh, make crime seem uh, less uh, needed or less attractive. And there's lots of wonderful programs uh, that exist, you know, for people who live in disadvantaged communities. But these programs often rely on a recipe that seems like it's very hard to reverse engineer and very hard to copy, right? Things like charismatic leaders and and just unusually very, you know, really dedicated employees, 
detailed knowledge of community norms. And those people don't seem to grow on trees, right? There's not an unlimited supply of those people. And so what is often found to be the case is that you can take it's very hard to take a program that works uh, really well for a couple hundred people and find a way to give that program to everyone who needs it. The, the nice thing about something that changes the physical environment, like street lighting, is that um, we sort of know how to scale it, right? You just produce more lights and you install them, right? And obviously, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it feels like it calls for less scale-up expertise and know-how than something like social programming. Uh, the intervention I'll talk about today costs only about $75 per community resident, so that also um, feels optimistic. And then finally, when when I think about a typical person who commits crimes, um, I generally think about someone who is thinking about maybe the next 10 minutes of their lives and not the next 10 years. Uh, and that's something that um, maybe a lot of people think might might be true for, for this population. And so if offenders tend to be myopic, then you know, you you might think that you can change behavior a lot better by focusing on something that's experienced in the present uh, than something like punishment, which will probably never be experienced because most crimes uh, aren't cleared. And if it is, it'll be experienced sometime in the distant future. Um, so that's sort of the basis for my interest in in something like street lighting. But more concretely. Um, prior to joining the faculty at Penn, I used to work full-time for a really cool research organization called the University of Chicago Crime Lab. And through the Crime Lab, I had the chance to meet with some policymakers in New York City who were interested in learning more about lighting. And so the project really came about through a stroke of good luck. Uh, an interested researcher met some visionary policymakers who uh, cared a lot about generating high-quality evidence. Your paper is titled Reducing Crime Through Environmental Design, Evidence from a Randomized Experiment of Street Lighting in New York City, um, and it's co-authored with Ben Hansen, Jason Lerner, and Lucy Parker. So let's talk about street lighting. Uh, it might seem obvious to people that crime is more likely to occur when it's dark outside, but of course, researchers like to think about underlying mechanisms in more detail than that. Uh, and it turns out there are a bunch of different ways the presence of streetlights might affect crime in a local area. So talk us through those. What are the potential mechanisms we should have in mind for why putting a streetlight somewhere might affect crime nearby? Yeah, so as you alluded to, there's there's lots and lots of ways that street lighting could affect uh, crime. I'm going to summarize the major ones briefly in the interest of time. Um, there are certainly others, so if any of your listeners are thinking of something that I didn't mention, I, I don't mean to suggest that um, <laughs> they shouldn't that's invalid. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but really, I think the most obvious way that street lighting uh, might matter, right, is that, you know, you have more lighting, so maybe a crime is more likely to be witnessed or a police officer might observe that crime, and so it's a deterrent to people who are thinking about offending. Um, another possibility, right, is that lighting might empower potential victims, either by uh, uh, causing more people to leave their homes and spend time outside, right, which increases more eyes on the street, uh, something that, that you've worked on, Jen. Um, and, you know, another possibility is, uh, you know, I'm walking around outside and uh, I now have greater visibility. So I'm, I'm walking down the street and I see a little old lady, and I say, well, that's that's fine, that's that's not a problem, but maybe a block past that little old lady, I see someone who sort of seems suspicious or up to no good, and, you know, I can cross the street, I can, I can take some precautions that would be more difficult to take 
uh, if if ambient lighting were were not as as strong. We could also think that lighting is a complement to existing crime reduction technologies like police officers or surveillance cameras, right? Those those are technologies that that can be more effective um, with with better lighting, and so you know lighting potentially could lead to more uh, incapacitation of of would be of, of offenders. Um, another possibility, uh, which has been proposed predominantly by criminologists and sociologists, that I, I think we really need to take very seriously, is that lighting might be a signal to people who live in a community that an area is cared for, um, that it's being looked after, that it's being watched. And accordingly, that it's an unwelcome place uh, to commit crimes or to hang out if you might sort of be up to no good. And and so those are some reasons why lighting, you know, could potentially reduce uh, crime. Now, lighting, of course, could increase crime, right? You know, if there's more people outside because they feel safer, then just mechanically that might be more opportunities for crimes to occur, uh, for fights to break out or something like that. Um, also, just as lighting empowers potential uh, victims, it can also empower potential offenders, right? Maybe it allows me to spot a particularly attractive victim. I see a guy stumbling around, obviously very drunk. You know, maybe I'll go rob that guy, right? So, um, you know, a priori, it's not obvious that, that lighting would have to reduce uh, crime. So before this study, what had we known about the net effects of lighting on crime? Yeah, um, so this has always been one of the really interesting questions for me as I started to think about uh, street lighting and and the literature that's led to where we're at right now. So street lighting uh, hasn't been around for years or even centuries, uh, but really in one one form or another, it's been around for millennia. Um, Street lighting in the form of oil lamps could actually be found in antiquity. Certainly um, cities in the Greco-Roman world um, had uh, to varying degrees, uh, 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 some some streetlights. Um, so this is probably an idea, a crime control idea that's as old as uh, civilization itself um, in some ways. Uh, not to digress too much, but um, I listened to, to uh, in addition to this podcast, another wonderful podcast on the history of Rome um, by a gentleman named Mike Duncan. And he was talking about uh, dining habits in in the city of Rome, um, you know, just after um, the year zero. And uh, you know, people would dine often at the the homes of of uh, a patron or or or, or friends. Uh, but but meals would end early so people could get home because the streets uh, were not uniformly lit in Rome, and everyone recognized that. You know, wandering through the narrow streets of Rome uh, at night was unwise. It was dangerous, right? So this is an idea that's very, very old. In the U.S., we've had street lighting to varying degrees since the 18th century. It might interest some of your listeners to know that Ben Franklin is often credited with having designed the first uh, candle-based streetlight in the, in the U.S. for the city of Philadelphia. And so, you know, given how long this idea has been around, you, you'd think we'd have pretty good evidence by now, you know, for whether this works and how it works and under what conditions it works. Um, but incredibly, the evidence is, is pretty thin. And it's not because of a lack of interest. Um, a recent meta-analysis written up by a couple of prominent criminologists identified uh, 32 prior studies of street lighting in the U.S. and the U.K., um, but all this evidence is observational, right? It's not, there's no experiments in, in this literature. Um, and, and it's funny, like when you think about 
what it would take to bring a drug to market, what the FDA would insist upon if we were to uh, think about a drug used to, to treat a disease, right? We would demand that there is not just one clinical trial, but multiple clinical trials. We have nothing like that um, in this literature. Uh, what these studies tend to do is to look at a community that, that got some kind of enhanced street lighting, um, and they just simply say, well, did crime go up or down? And, you know, crime goes up and down for many, many reasons, right? Uh, you know, weather, just the dynamics of, of uh, gang activity, uh, community norms, whatever. And it's really hard to know if any change in crime was due to street lighting and not something um, else. And so that really serves to limit our confidence um, in these findings. Uh, by the way, the findings are very mixed uh, on average uh, uh, people tend to find that street lighting reduces crime, but but plenty of studies find find the opposite. Uh, I, I actually think the best uh, evidence comes from a, a paper of of yours um, that you wrote with Nick Sanders at, at Cornell that uh, looks at daylight savings time. Right, all of a sudden it's six o'clock and it's it's dark out when it used to be light. Um, what happens to street crime? And you, and you find that that crime is sensitive to to ambient lighting, um, which I think is powerful proof of concepts. Um, so what we're trying to do is just um, take that proof of concept and, 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 and see if there's something that policymakers can do to, to leverage that idea further. Yeah, and we, we are careful in that paper to note that lighting, like sunlight, is not the same as street lights, right? And right. it creates a very different kind of light in many ways. And uh, so we really do need to know what the effect of street lights are because that's what we have power over uh, in the real world. And so, so you've already talked a little bit about the identification challenge here, but let's dig into that a little bit more as well as any data challenges you face. So so talk us through the hurdles you had to overcome in order to do this study. Yeah. So as I mentioned, what um, you know, what's done in the previous literature is you find a place that had, you know, some street lights put in, you see what happened to crime. And some of the better research out there, um, there there's a comparison place as well. So you say, well, did crime change more in the place that got the lights compared to some you know, hopefully similar place that didn't get new streetlights. And, you know, the, the real challenge is you need to find a place that's not just hopefully similar, but really is credibly similar, um, you know, to the, the place that got uh, new lighting. And that's very, very difficult to do, right? If you think about a community, the community you live in, um, can you identify another community in your city that's just like yours in all ways and is experiencing the same crime trends? Uh, Probably not, right? And you might think that policymakers, uh, when they have the ability to allocate new lights to a community, are, are not going to just do that in a totally random way. They're going to be thoughtful about it, and they're going to think, well, where are these lights going to be more effective? You know, where are we experiencing a crime problem that we're having trouble controlling? And you know, that makes it really, really hard to believe that you you can easily find comparison areas for for the places that that do get streetlights. Now, there's other issues as well. Um, in the interest of time, let me just mention one more that I think is really important. So, so past studies of street lighting, even the ones that that tend to be, you know, better executed, are typically only looking at one treated area, like one neighborhood, sometimes two neighborhoods, and they'll find, you know, for those two treated neighborhoods, two, you know, possibly similar places to compare those neighborhoods to. And so at the end of the day, we're looking at what happens to crime in like two or four places. 
And, you know, when you think again about, let's say, the FDA approval process to bring a, a new drug to market, if I told you that I was trying to figure out if Lipitor was effective in um, controlling blood cholesterol and I did a study on four people, uh, you'd probably say that's surely not enough evidence to bring a drug to market. And so, you know, and, and what I think you're implicitly thinking about there um, is what researchers would call um, statistical power, statistical significance, right? You know, is this a result that's very likely to be real or could it just be due to random chance? And in small samples, results, um, you know, often can be due to random chance. And that's another problem that's running around uh, in this literature. So to measure the causal effects of streetlights, you and your co-authors do what we all wish we could do. <laughs> you conducted a randomized experiment. Uh, and I love that you did this in large part because it's a great example, as you mentioned, of researchers collaborating with local governments to test the effectiveness of some intervention they're interested in. And this is not super common in practice. It can be very difficult to get all the decision makers on the same page. So give us a little bit of background on how this experiment came about. Yeah, so this was this was a really great opportunity. Um, as you note, it's hard to do something like this. Policymakers aren't always interested in devoting time, energy, and resources to generating evidence, and and I don't think that's because they're like bad people or they're bad at their jobs or they're only self-interested or anything like that. I think policymakers. Um, you know, face a really challenging environment where they're being evaluated on what's happening in the next three months, not the next three or six or nine years. And, you know, it's really costly to work with researchers. Um, there's lots of things that that a policymaker can devote his or her time to. Um, so we were just really fortunate to be able to work with some folks in New York City um, who really wanted to see if lighting had potential and valued rigorous as opposed to, to merely correlational evidence. And these are folks who are, not, who are not simply trying to sort of say, like, we want evidence to back up uh, something we've already decided is good. They, they wanted to know what was true, um, you know, which is great um, for, for, you know, as a researcher. Uh, so just to give you a little bit more, more background, um, for those among your listeners who don't know much about what's been going on in New York City, so beginning around 2014, um, New York City, which is where the study takes place, uh, started investing heavily in the city's public housing communities. So crime is way down in New York. New York is one of the safest cities in the United States. It's, it's just incredible how safe New York is. But crime has been sticky in some of these public housing uh, communities. Um, and so the city's thinking, well, how can we um, you know, approach this uh, you know, in, a, in a multifaceted way? So they began investing in enhanced social services, in, in changing uh, uh, the built environment, which included street lighting. And people in the city wanted to know whether lighting in particular was a strategy worth pursuing further. And they asked uh, the crime lab, and, and at the time I worked full-time at the crime lab, well, how could we answer this question you know, in, in a really rigorous way? So we proposed a randomized experiment. And we worked closely with city officials for the next two years to design uh, the experiment that um, um, became this study. All right. So tell us about that experiment itself. So you wanted to measure the effects of adding streetlights outside of public housing. How did you get those streetlights and how did you decide where to put them? Sure. Let's, yeah, let's talk about the experiment. In fact, let me start by describing the intervention and then uh, I'll talk about the research design, uh, which I think is sort of a, maybe a separate discussion. Um, so, so these are communities that already have normal street lighting, right? This is New York City. We're not talking about the middle of the woods. Um, these are areas that have never lacked 
um, you know, amb- some kind of ambient lighting at night. Um, but despite the presence of ordinary streetlights, uh, obviously it can get pretty dark in parts of these communities. And, and maybe it's worth um, describing what these communities look like for your listeners who, who don't um, know much about uh, of these communities in New York. Um, so New York has 340 public housing communities spread across the five boroughs of the city. Uh, officially, those communities are home to more than 400,000 people. Unofficially, it's probably more like 600,000 people. And there's a lot of variety in how these these communities are laid out. Um, but typically, they consist of a number of large apartment buildings that are set around some green space, some benches, playgrounds, etc., um, they have pathways through them. Most are inset from the street. Uh, they actually look a little bit like a community of dorms on a college campus. Um, and what we're talking about doing are adding not permanent streetlights, um, the sort that you see in the rest of the city that are that are installed uh, to the, in, in the ground. We're talking about adding temporary streetlight towers. Um, you know, I wish I could show you a picture. Uh, I guess uh, this is the challenge of, of, of the podcasting world. <laughs> um, but but these, are, these are very, very bright lights. Uh, you might have seen something like this if you've ever driven uh, by a highway late at night where there's some road work being done. And these are the sorts of lights that will illuminate the roads so construction workers can see what they're doing. Um, you know, they're maybe 10 or 15 feet high, and they're very, very bright. Um, and I want to I want to talk a little bit more about what these are. So just so you get a a, a better sense of, of of what what's happening here. So these lights turn on automatically in the evening, and they turn off automatically during the daytime. Uh, they're refueled daily uh, during the daytime by a city employee. They're diesel powered, uh, so they make a little bit of noise. If you're really, really close to them, they smell a little bit like fuel. Um, you know, that's really only if you're very, very close to to the lights. But I think the most important thing to mention is that, like, you can't miss them, right? They're really, really salient. We're 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 talking about adding a lot of new lighting to these communities, but also adding um, a really important, potentially important signal that these are areas that are being looked after, cared for, et cetera. And by the way, the lights are not wheeled away during the daytime. They're still sitting there uh, during the daytime. So it's it's sort of a constant reminder potentially to people um, that something um, is, is happening. So these streetlights were added to these communities in March of 2016, uh, and they were in place for six months until September of uh, 2016. Uh, so that's the intervention. Let me briefly describe the research uh, design. Um, this is a little bit of nuance uh, that, that we need to talk about here. So there's there's 340 of these public housing communities in the city. Uh, 78 of them were selected uh, for the study um, based on, on, on prior crime and the perceived need for additional uh, street lighting. So half of these communities, so 39 of them to be uh, exact, were, were randomly selected by coin flip to, uh, or something like a, a, the computer equivalent of a coin flip, uh, to receive the temporary streetlights, and, and half um, were in our control group. Uh, in practice, the way we did this is we ranked all of the 78 developments according to their previous level of outdoor nighttime crime. Uh, within the first pair, uh, we sort of you know flipped our, our our coin, and and one of those places got the lights, the other one didn't. The next pair, we you know one 
a pair member got the lights, the next one didn't, and so on and so forth. So this is uh, what's referred to as paired randomization. But the city also, you know, wanted us to try to, you know, figure out how much lighting is needed uh, to reduce crime. Like how many towers, uh, light towers do you need to put into these communities uh, in order to, to generate some kind of effect? And so what we did is within the areas that were randomly selected to receive this lighting intervention, we randomly allocated a different number of light towers to each community. So some of these communities got a lot of new lights and others got a very, very small number of new lights. Um, so to sort of summarize, we have an experiment within an experiment. So we have a treatment group and a control group. And within the treatment group, we have randomization in the dosage or the amount of, of new lighting that these communities receive. And, you know, there's some trade-offs that we had to face in designing the experiment in, in this way. Um, so on the plus side, um, you know, we had a chance to learn more about what, how much lighting uh, constitutes what we might think of as a clinical dosage. Uh, on the other hand, some of the treatment places received only a small amount of new lighting, possibly even less than what a clinical dosage actually is. And so when we make this treatment versus control comparison, that might end up understating the effect of a clinical dosage of, of lighting. And so um, I'm going to focus mostly on the um, experiment within the experiment, um, looking at the randomization of dosage of lighting within the, the group of developments that receive the new lights. Um, but I'll, I'll still use that, uh, that control group, that randomized control group, um, as a really, really critical robustness check on the validity of, of these uh, results. And of course, this experiment, as you said, was done with the cooperation of New York City, which hopefully made data access easier. So what data were you able to get to analyze the effects of this intervention? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we got proprietary data from the New York Police Department. There's similar data that's now available publicly. Our data differs um, in, in a couple of nuanced respects that that you know, probably aren't worth getting into right now. But, um, you know, these were proprietary data. They contain information on all crimes that are known to law enforcement, um, except for uh, rapes, um, which were blinded um, in order to preserve anonymity. Um, thankfully, outdoor nighttime rapes are are not very common crimes in these communities, so it's it's probably not a major limitation. Um, we know the date of the crime. We know the official timestamp of when the crime happened. We know whether uh, the crime occurred outdoors, and we know what type of crime um, it was. We don't know anything about the victims of the crime um, in order, again, to protect people's uh, privacy and anonymity. Uh, we also have some additional data from the New York City Housing Authority uh, just about the characteristics of these communities so we can make sure that when we flipped our coin and randomized uh, these communities to different treatment conditions, that that randomization was uh, effective. And before the experiment started, what did crime look like in these areas? Yeah, so um, these are mostly what we would think of in New York City as high crime areas, but um, compared to similar areas in, let's say, Baltimore or St. Louis, um, these would look uh, far safer, right? So, um, and that's just because crime in general is so much lower in New York than it is in, in some of the more distressed cities uh, in the United States. So, um, overall, when you think about the level of violence in, in these communities, it's about two times higher than it is in the most dangerous U.S. state. But overall, we're still talking about small, 
absolute numbers of serious outdoor crimes in these communities. And let, let me be a little bit more detailed about what I mean by that. So the typical community community in our study experienced um, approximately four outdoor nighttime, what are called index crimes, during the six months that the study uh, was running. So index crimes are uh, you know, generally the most serious crimes that are known to law enforcement, they comprise murder, uh, ordinarily rape, uh, but not in our data, robbery, uh, serious assaults, um, burglaries, um, larcenies of valuable items, and, and motor vehicle thefts. Uh, so these are serious crimes, um, and there's about four of these over a six-month period, so a little bit less than one per month. Um, now they're serious crimes, so so you know obviously they have high social costs, but still the absolute numbers are are not uh, very high. Higher than New York would like. <laughs> Higher than uh, New York would like. And it is interesting to think about. I mean, the crime lab has this office in New York. They also have an office in Chicago, which is it suffers from very different problems. And it's interesting to just think about the political economy of going along with research like this. Uh-huh. Sometimes policymakers are willing to do experiments when they are desperate and don't know what to do. And sometimes they're willing to experiment when things are actually not that bad and they have more bandwidth to be able to experiment and see what the lessons are. And that feels like the situation New York is in. Absolutely. Yeah. Does that align with your perspective? Yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly right. You know, when you don't when you're not always fighting fires, you you have a chance to innovate and you have a chance to learn and um think that's one of the great virtues of working in New York right now. Um, you know, one of the costs from a research perspective is when you have lower absolute numbers of crime, um that creates challenges for statistical power. But um yeah. Great. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the main results. What do you find is the effect of street lighting on outdoor nighttime crime? Yeah, so we find very, very large reductions in these outdoor nighttime index crimes that occur on these public housing campuses, something on the order of around 60% um, reductions. Now, you know, given that we have a relatively small sample, um, there's also a lot of variation in our outcome variable crime. You know, there's some statistical uncertainty around that estimate. Uh, but it's almost surely larger than, say, 30%. It could potentially be as large as something like 80%. Um, so these are qualitatively large uh, results, uh, regardless of sort of you know where within the confidence interval you think we you know we sort of lie. There is an important qualifier here that I, I, I want to mention. Um, so you know you, you probably have um, some pretty astute listeners, uh, and and I'm sure many of those listeners are wondering about spillovers to adjacent areas. So we put lights into these communities. Doesn't crime just uh, shift around the corner? And you know that's a very valid concern. Um, so for a number of reasons, I, I think that story's uh, less plausible than it might sound. Um, you know, adjacent areas are qualitatively quite different from the residential communities that receive the lights. So it's not clear how substitutable um, something around the corner really is. But absolutely, this is a valid concern. And, you know, it, it really colored how we, um, you know, chose to analyze the data. And so we wanted to be very, very conservative about how we fold in potential spillovers to adjacent areas. And so what we decided to do is to draw a two-block radius around these treated communities and consider that entire area to be treated. So the campus itself plus this two-block radius, even though the lighting only was added to these campuses. And when you consider the entire area, the two-block radius area, um, even there we see something like a 35-40% reduction in crime 
and that we view as a fairly conservative estimate of the impact of uh, this intervention. And so to dig into potential spillovers a little bit more, I think you also look even beyond that two block radius to, to see if there's yeah. spillovers beyond that. And then you also look at other times of day. So tell us, tell us more about spillovers. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, the two blocks, um, you know, we, we can show that if you change that radius, it, you know, the results still, um, you know, hold up even fairly far outside the development. We actually focused on two blocks because a lot of folks who think about public safety in New York feel like two blocks is, is sort of the most reasonable choice. So that became our default. Um, but yeah, it, the results don't depend on, on that choice. But you also um, mentioned um, spillovers to the daytime and I, d- I definitely want to talk about this. This is this is really interesting, uh, at least to me. Um, so when I when I first began thinking about this project, uh, I guess way back in 2014, you know, my instinct was to suppose that lighting should have no impact on daytime crimes, and I even went as far as to say, well, you know, hey, if there's an impact on daytime crime, that maybe feels like a failure of randomization to fully balance the treatment and control groups because lighting should only affect crime, you know, when there's otherwise no uh, uh, lighting. But when you read the criminology literature, you actually start to see lots of theoretical arguments as well as anecdotal evidence that, you know, lighting really can function as a signal um, and that it might have these global effects on crime, not just at night, but during the daytime, um, because it, it gets people to sort of feel like a community is being uh, cared for or being protected. Now, I think that concern or that, not really concern, but that um, that argument is even more salient for an intervention like this. Um, so we're talking about these really, really visible light towers that are there at night. They're also there during the day. And, you know, it's not hard to imagine that that changes um, the thinking of people who live in these communities, not just at night, but 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 all the time. Uh, we do, in fact, see what I would call suggestive evidence. Um, this is not anything statistically significant, that daytime crimes do go down a little bit um, when, uh, as a function of the intervention, um, which would be consistent with maybe there being something like uh, a demonstration effect of, of this intervention. But I want to be cautious about making any claim here, both because the, the, the result is not statistically significant, but also because of a basic measurement issue that I think is worth uh, mentioning, at least in, in brief. So when when you look at crime data in New York or any city for that matter, this is a, a global issue. Um, you know, there's there's usually a field in these data that 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 um, stamp the time that uh, a crime complaint became known to law enforcement. And in theory, that's the time the crime occurred. But in practice, that's sometimes when the crime occurred, and sometimes it's when the crime was reported. Um, a really simple example of this is: imagine that I leave my house and I go to grab my bike to bike to someone else's house and my bike's not there. And it's been like a week since I last used it and I report the bike stolen. Well, what time did that happen? I have no idea, right? And so chances are that's going to be recorded as happening when I made the report. Um, Even for something like an assault where I should know when the crime took place, um, you know, it's it's not clear that that's always going to be documented at the right time. I, I personally have known people who have been the victim of a crime at night and, you know, they went home, they, they got a good night's sleep, and then they went in and reported the crime in the morning. 
Um, so, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of uncertainty about, about um, the quality of these timestamps. Um, and so it's possible that some of what we see happening in the daytime are really nighttime crimes that we're just measuring as happening during, during the day. Yes, those are the important caveats, but you uh, you do find some suggestive evidence that, that crime yes. is going down in the day. Those caveats aside, I think it is interesting to think about that result as kind of telling us something about mechanisms, right? I mean, if we think about, there is this underlying question of whether lighting affects crime because it changes the potential costs and benefits of committing the crime. There's that turn effect you mentioned at the beginning, or if it's something about the kind of signaling that the community is cared for. And that's why I think it, it is interesting to at least try to measure what's going on in the daytime to try to piece that together a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. So a big challenge you faced here and a challenge in many studies of place-based interventions like this one uh, is a relatively small number of observations. So you cover a lot of ground in this experiment, but because you're looking at essentially neighborhoods instead of people, you're limited in terms of your sample size. Um, and you and your co-authors are extremely transparent about this in the paper, and you do your best to analyze the data in a way that limits researcher discretion and so on. So I'd love to just talk more about that aspect of the paper. What did you do in this study that you might not have done if you'd had a larger sample? Yeah, thanks for asking about this. This is one of the issues that kept me up a lot of nights when I was thinking about mm-hmm. you know, how to design the study, how to analyze the data. I, I definitely have more uh, gray hair now than when uh, this study started, <laughs> although I guess that's a confounded comparison. I'm also five years older, uh, but but no, really this this was um, this was a real challenge. Um, so on, on the one hand, we we have an enormous sample, right? We have uh, approximately sixty thousand people living in the housing communities we studied, um, and our sample of thirty nine places is really very large relative to a sample size of one or two, which is what you see in the prior literature. So. No, that's me patting myself uh, on the back. But on the other hand, we're still talking about 39 observations. This is not exactly uh, big data. And compounding that, we also have highly variable outcome, uh, variable crime. So crime varies quite a bit amongst these housing communities. It varies a lot over time, even within a given housing community. We also have a treatment which itself varies because some of these communities received a lot of lighting, others received uh, only a small amount of lighting. So, you know, how do we how do we handle all of this? So, so normally, right, in an experiment, um, it's really really simple to analyze the data, right? The hard part is is rolling out the experiment and the econometrics is 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 where you can kick back and relax, but. Um, you know, so you really just compare treatment and control means, right? Did you know crime change more in the treatment area than the control area, on average? Um, you really don't have to make assumptions. Uh, you know that in a large sample, randomization works like gangbusters. Um, you don't need to control for anything. It's it's one of the the many virtues of experimentation. It's just hard for researchers to manipulate the results. Um, now, in this study, we didn't have that luxury. Um, you know, we needed to control for covariates, so so for other neighborhood characteristics that might have impacted crime and could have, by chance, been associated with our random rollout of lighting just because we're talking about a small sample. Uh, we also needed to control for these uh, other characteristics for statistical power reasons to um, increase certainty around the resulting estimates. And the problem is, once you start controlling for variables in a multivariate in a multivariate framework, you have to make all sorts of choices, right? Do I control for X? Do I control for Y? 
Should I control for the natural log of X or the natural log of Y, right? It's very easy for a researcher to cherry pick a preferred model and get just about any answer that you want to get. And, and, and even if you're, you know, being really honest, right, and, and trying to do, do good, um, it's easy to, like, talk yourself into a model being a preferred model because it accords with your priors. And, you know, this is exactly the situation that we wanted to avoid. Um, it's, it's bad for uh, this given paper. It's bad for, you know, science as, as a whole. And so we wanted to find a way to tie our hands behind our backs and make as few choices as possible. And so one of the main tools that we use in our analysis is um, a machine learning classifier called the Lasso, um, which is pioneered um, really in, in, in statistics and computer science. It's not something that I learned about um, in grad school, being trained to be a social scientist, um, uh, but it's, it's an approach that's, that's becoming more, more, more common. So I, I won't get into the computational details, but essentially this is an algorithm that uses uh, just a smart method to pick covariates that genuinely predict um, the outcome of interest, which in our case is is crime. And so we're going to let the algorithm pick a preferred model. Um, the algorithm will decide whether it's the log of population or population and levels that should be in the model. My co-author my co-authors and I are not going to make that uh, that decision. Um, and that's one of the virtues of this uh, approach. Um, now, we also re-estimated our model uh, thousands of times, each time controlling for different stuff. And we can show that no matter how you slice it, um, we're seeing uh, large reductions in, in crimes. The result really does seem to be uh, quite robust. And you do additional robustness checks on top of those, as you do in, in a paper like this. Uh, so we already talked about looking at different radii of spillovers across neighborhoods. You also look at whether outliers are driving the effects. So whether there's certain public housing projects that had more of a change than others. Um, you look at how much lighting dosage matters. So walk us through those exercises and what additional information they provide. Yeah, so anytime you're working with a really small sample, say of size 39, you know, there's always going to be a concern that there's like one or two highly leveraged observations. Like when you drop one of these developments, the treatment effect goes away, something like that, right? When you're working with a million observations, you worry less about that problem. So for us, you know, we, we wanted to just, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's. We uh, make sure that this is not being driven by one or two sort of outlier developments. Uh, we make sure that it's not just a couple of uh, developments that received a very, very high dosage of lighting that are leading to these effects. Um, it's, it's nothing like that. This is a, uh, a pretty broad-based uh, treatment effect. Uh, you know, we, we think about the, the size of the displacement radius, uh, which, I, which I'd, I'd mentioned. But I, I think really the, the, the really critical robustness check here is what we do to bring back the control group, the randomized control group. And let me let me sort of talk that through. Because um, the big threat to, you know, getting the wrong answer here, the big threat for us is that the randomization just for whatever reason didn't work. Um, and, you know, how can we figure out if randomization worked as it should have in this context? Uh, did our coin flips do what, do what we wanted them to do? So one thing we can do, right, is we can check and say, um, you know, we have this information about the characteristics of these communities. Um, and we flipped a coin. Um, some of these places got a small dosage of lighting. Other places got um, a lot of lighting. Um, we would want those places to look alike um, with respect to their pre-intervention characteristics, and they do. 
But the problem is that's an incomplete test. We can um, look at the um, characteristics that we actually have data on, but we can't look directly at all of these um, nuanced things that make a community uh, what they are, right? Um, there's many things about your community, I'm sure, that you would find salient, but would be difficult to measure in an, in an administrative data set. So the way that we can do this is we can remember that when we randomized the, the lighting uh, in the first place, we randomized in pairs. So I took the two housing developments that had the most crime in our sample, I flipped a coin, one of them uh, got this lighting intervention, the other one didn't. Uh, the place that got the intervention was then randomized a dosage of lighting. Now, its paired control place is randomized the same dosage of lighting, but that lighting is never actually received because this place is in the control group. And so what we would want to be the case if this lighting, if this lighting intervention really is effective is for the dosage of lighting to predict crime in the treatment group but it should not predict crime in the control group. And that's a test for whether we're balanced uh, not only on variables that we do observe, but for variables that we don't directly observe. And we, in fact, see that that's the case, that the intervention uh, predicts crime in the treatment group. It does not predict crime in the control group. Great. Okay. So let's think bigger picture here. So this paper is pretty new, uh, and we've already talked about the broader literature on lighting, but the paper is also part of a larger literature on place-based crime reduction policies. So how do you think of the results of this study fitting in with what we know about the effects of targeting a place rather than specific people when we're trying to reduce crime? Yeah, great. So I love the bigger picture, um, you know, coming from a, a policy school, uh, you know, it's just so important to, to talk more about that. Um, so, so the idea of place-based crime reduction is not a new idea. Um, there's uh, some urban planning theory around this, which dates back to the 1960s. Uh, often it goes by um, the acronym SEPTED, which stands for Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design. Um, this is an idea where um, urban planners seek to leverage design principles and say, well, how can we design public spaces that are less conducive to offending? Um, and that's not just about lighting. It's about a lot of things like you know, visibility and um, you know, other street uh, conditions. You know, so with, within criminology, anyone who's interested in this topic should, should definitely read the many, many foundational papers um, written by Ron Clark, who's, uh, who's at Rutgers, and a number of his, his uh, collaborators really paved the way for thinking about these issues. Um, what we've seen in the last decade is that there's really been a proliferation of some high-quality research um, around um, some of these environmental design um, um, topics and, and crime, uh, and including some experiments, uh, which has been which has been really great. Uh, so my colleague at Penn, uh, John McDonald, has been uh, really focal in this research. Um, Charlie Brannis, who's actually in the School of Public Health at Columbia, which speaks to the interdisciplinary nature of of some of this research. Um, they've uh, randomized things like fixing up vacant buildings, um, you know, which are eyesores in communities and some people think um, create the conditions that are conducive to crime, uh, greening vacant lots. Um, Anthony Braga at Northeastern has also done some really important work in this area in the context of um, what's commonly called problem-oriented policing. Um, so this is uh, an idea where cops will think about 
um, design-based challenges to reducing crime and, and, and try to come up with strategies to, to control crime through maybe non-traditional means. Uh, and, I, and I think the big takeaway from a lot of this work is that there's a portion of, you know, really this canonical theory of broken windows policing, um, which changed, um, you know, policing in a really big way in the United States, uh, which has a great deal of validity. The idea that disorder can dis- disorder can beget more disorder and that disorder reduction can be a really, really critical piece of the crime reduction puzzle. And, you know, that's not to say that there's much evidence at all in favor of the importance of making tons and tons of misdemeanor arrests, right? It's, but, but I, th- I think the idea that um, caring for a community, creating the conditions um, for pro-social community members to, you know, take control of their communities in, in a positive way uh, can really, really have a big impact. So putting it all together, the results of this study um, and the broader literature is both of them that we've talked about. What are the policy implications of this work? What have you told New York City? Because presumably you've had many conversations with them about the results here. Uh, and what would you tell policymakers in in other places? Yeah. So what have we learned here? So I, I want to be very cautious. Um, so on the one hand, I am enormously encouraged by these results. Um, These are qualitatively very large reductions in crime in response to the intervention we studied. Um, This intervention costs maybe 75 bucks per resident, um, you know, which which feels like it could be viable moving forward uh, for a number of cities. Uh, I definitely feel strongly that this should be in the conversation as other cities think about what they can do um, to confront challenges in the, in the communities that, that have the, the greatest number of challenges. Um, that being said, uh, there's still a bunch of caveats here, and I want to make sure that I'm not overselling what we can learn from this. Um, so first, when you think about residential communities, most crimes don't happen outdoors and at night. In fact, usually the most common type of crime in these communities is something that happens behind closed doors um, that street lighting probably won't have a first order impact on and that cops um, are struggling to deal with as well. And and this is something like domestic violence. Um, So overall, when we think about the crime reduction we observe as a a result of this lighting intervention, um, this translates into maybe a 5% reduction in overall community crime. This is not a panacea. We haven't caused crime to be a thing of the past by putting in some some streetlights. This is affecting, um, I think, some very visible and and, and very important uh, serious crimes in these communities, but there's, there's other uh, interventions that, that are, that are going to be needed alongside this. Um, second, we're talking about a very specific sort of tactical crime intervention, right? I, I think this was rolled out in a very smart way by New York City, um, but it also creates some, some challenges with respect to external validity. What can other cities learn from this? So the city said, well, what can we do to go into some of these higher crime communities and 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 reduce crime in a, in a light touch sort of way, right? Um, and, you know, again, and, and this is something that, that we've alluded to in our discussion previously, but, you know, part of what's probably going on here is this isn't just lighting, there's these demonstration effects, right? That, that's got to be, you know, part of this mechanism or likely is part of this mechanism. And, you know, not every city has public housing communities that look like New York's. Um, so, 
you know, I, I think as, as social planners in, in other cities think about this, you know, it's important to think about the details and, and what would make sense in a different context. Um, also, you know, we're only looking at short-term impacts here. Um, you know, we, we need to understand what happens over the longer term as well. Uh, and then finally, there's just the general refrain. This is one study in one city. Um, you know, I think it's easy to have the instinct to say, you know, hey, this is the first lights experiment. It worked great. Let's let's just like scale up lights everywhere. But, um, you know, we, we really want to be cautious here because the opportunity costs are high. You know, these are communities where uh, the most vulnerable citizens live and, and getting um, policy right uh, is really important. And, and so I, I think it makes sense to think about scaling up lighting more and studying this more, but um, but carefully, slowly, cautiously, right? Do you have any way of knowing if the residents in these communities liked having the lights there? Yeah, I can talk about this in um, in an anecdotal sort of way. Uh, so um, the the mayor's office of criminal justice in New York City surveyed community residents um, during the time these lights were in the field and asked people, you know, hey, what do you think of the streetlights? 80% of the people who responded to the survey said the lights are great. We really um, like having these here. Many people wanted the lights to remain. Um but this is not a random sample of community residents. Um, in particular, older women are very overrepresented among the people who answered the survey, and younger men are underrepresented. Um, so I think what I would say is the people who are uh, taking a strong interest in their communities and, and who are in contact with policymakers uh, seem to, to really want the lights. Um, by the way, there's a lot of prior research out there. Uh, in in criminology that suggests that people like streetlights, but um, you know, surely there are some people in these communities that um, you know might have a different reaction as well. Yeah, and is New York going to keep the lights? What's the verdict? Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, so what I can say is that um, there's a number of public housing communities that um, have received additional permanent streetlights, um, not necessarily as a result of this research, but this is something that was happening alongside this research. Um, the, the extent to which that's going to continue to scale throughout public housing, um, you know, I, I don't know for, for sure. I guess we'll see in the coming uh, months or, or possibly years. We'll have to keep tabs on that. Yeah. So what's the research frontier here? What are the next big questions in this area that still need to be answered? Yeah, there's there's so much more to know. Um, I I feel both really excited and also really really overwhelmed um, to stand amongst others who are um, working in this area right now. I I think this is um, going to produce some very very exciting results over the next decade. But it's amazing how much more we need to know. Uh, so first, I think we need more replication. Um, you know, sometimes I worry that as researchers. Um, we're rewarded so much for being the first um, and so little for being the second or the third or the fourth, but it's so critical to, you know, have more interventions like this, but also interventions that are designed a little bit differently so we can start to know what works and for whom and in what context. Um, and I would love to be a part of that if there's other cities that are considering doing this and, and, and want to learn more about how to make the most available resources um, in other communities, how should a lighting intervention be designed? We we don't know a whole lot about that. Um, to what extent will 
um, putting in more normal streetlights work, right, where you don't have maybe as salient a demonstration effects. Uh, another thing that we really need to know more about is where is lighting most effective. This is something that um, the folks in New York um, asked my colleagues and I when we um, had some preliminary findings to show them. And we really couldn't speak much to it because we have such a small sample. You know, where should we start if we're if we're going to start rolling out lights? You know, where should we put those lights? So I think this is just a subset of of what we want to learn about. In addition, obviously, to understanding more about the the dominant mechanisms, do lights uh, change uh, the amount of human activity you see outside, et cetera, uh, et cetera. So if any listeners out there, if their city wants to experiment with streetlights in their community, they should call Professor Chelfin. Call me. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely <laughs> talk to you. I'd, I'd love to do more of this work. Excellent. Uh, well, my guest today has been Aaron Chelfin from the University of Pennsylvania. Aaron, thanks so much for doing this. It's a pleasure. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is now part of Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation. You can find links on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Haley Greasaber. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.